Welcome. Glad y'all are here. We are going to continue our morning. We're going to spend a few minutes uh, in... We're going to continue our morning with prayer. We're going to spend a few minutes praying for a people group in Nigeria, uh, the Fulani people uh, in Nigeria. We're going to pray for a local church and um, the pastor of the church, uh, Faith Outreach in Greenville and Rance Moore. And we're going to pray about how we spend these next few minutes, and then we'll climb into our passage together. If you'd like to uh, kind of have a passage ready, you can have Matthew chapter 5 ready, and we'll stand in just a moment. And read from that passage. Let's, let's pray first. Lord, we are thankful for these few minutes that we have together. We are thankful that we have something uh, that's uh, living and powerful uh, to open, that we can climb into a, a, a book that is, um, is no ordinary book, that uh, is a, a medium through which you continue to speak to us and continue to guide your people and equip your people and mobilize your people. Uh, Lord, we are just, uh, I pray this morning that the, the, um, the thought of, of Sundays being routine um, will sort of um, be pushed to the side as we consider that we are sitting at the, high, the feet of the high King of heaven and that you are speaking to us through your word in these next few minutes. We have had a wonderful time singing true things back to you about you, reminding ourselves about your greatness, reminding one another about your greatness, and hopefully blessing you as you hear us sing your praises. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes you'll speak to us through your word. Uh, Lord, also we want to pray for a couple of uh, uh, specifics this morning. Praying for a people group in Nigeria, the Fulani people, uh, less than half of a, a percent of which uh, are Christians, Lord, of nearly 16 million people. Lord, we pray for this people group this morning, lifting them up, uh, knowing full well that you know this people already. You knew them before they were ever formed, before they were ever made, before they ever they ever um, grouped up and became tribes and uh, did life together and multiplied. Lord, we put this people group in front of you, believing that you care for your people. Lord, believing, too, that you are drawing your people from the far corners from every tribe and every nation. And this is a tribe we want to lift up this morning, a people group we want to put in front of you and beg you to draw them unto you. Lord, we pray that as you are working maybe visions and dreams and questions, uh, that you are uh, working in this people group, people who are seeking and looking for answers, that you will couple that with people that are not comfortable staying here. And people that have a burden for these people groups in these far corners to go and take the good news uh, and proclaim your greatness and your goodness to these far corners. Lord, we ask you to connect those dots, to send sowers and um, to do a great work as the seed is sown on the soil of the heart. Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for a, a, a local church. We pray for Rance Moore and for Faith Outreach, a church that's been around ever since we've been here, as far as I know. And Rance, who's been uh, uh, the, the pastor there, as, as, as far as I know, since we've been here. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, just bless Rance, in his, first of all, in his worship, that he would experience, experience you, that he would see your face, that he would know you, that you would guard him, from this becoming a job, that you would guide him in this being a, a calling, and Lord, that that calling would sustain him through all manner of seasons. Lord, we pray that his marriage would be blessed uh, as he's pursuing you, as he's loving his wife, as Christ loved the church. We pray, too, that this people at Faith Outreach would be blessed as you are blessing Rance and his family. Lord, pray even this morning that he's probably preparing to preach, that you will um, 
speak to your people through him, that you will guide your people through him, that you will be glorified in the outcome. We are entrusting them to you. I'm praying these things this morning in Christ's precious name. Amen. Larry King was in the news this week. I don't watch Larry King, but I know who he is, a TV commentator. He spoke out this week about the downfall of his marriage to his wife of 23 years named Sean Southwick. He said that religion and their 26-year age gap eventually took its toll on their relationship. 26-year age gap. The television personality has married eight times twice to the same woman, and is on his way to his eighth divorce. Uh, In August of last year, he filed for for divorce. She never saw it coming, apparently. Had no idea that uh, that's what he was planning to do. Uh, They were married, from what I understand, in a hospital room in 1997, where he just, he was about to have triple bypass surgery or something, some sort of surgery on his heart. They were married in the um, hospital room 27 years ago. She never saw this coming. They've been married 22 years. They have two uh, uh, grown children, Chance, 20 years old, and Cannon, 19 years old. Uh, And Larry King, uh, speaking to People Magazine, he said, I'm sorry about the marriage. I'll always care for my wife, but it just hit a point where we just didn't get along. King and Southwick, you already said that, married in 1997. um, And he said uh, there there were some interesting things that he said over the course of this article. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but what stood out to me were a number of what I would call understatements. This was the first understatement. He said, I got married a lot. I got married a lot, he said, but in my head, I'm not a marrying guy. When I grew up, nobody lived together. If you fell in love, you got married. And so I married the ones that I loved. But what I loved at 20 is not what I loved at 30. And what I loved at 30 is not what I loved at 40. I think his choice of words there might shed some light on Larry's disposition about love because he speaks of love as what I love, not whom I loved or who I loved. It wasn't just King's changing emotions that led to the split. He said, we had a big age difference and that eventually takes its toll. I thought that was an understatement. He's 26 years older than her. Um, He said it became an issue because she's very religious Mormon and I'm an agnostic atheist. Like, I mean, you're working at hating God and that agnostic, like he doesn't exist. And if he does, I'm going to hate him. I mean, agnostic atheist going out of your way to to be against God. And she's a a devout Mormon. He said, so that eventually causes little problems. (laughs) Okay, how, how many more understatements? Uh, He added, we overcame a lot, but eventually became a ship's passing in the night situation. Uh, He suffered a stroke last year, which made him take stock of his life and think about the future. He's 86. And I'm like, man, you couldn't just hang on with her for a few more years? I mean, you're 86. Come on. Hang in there. He said, I thought a lot about what I wanted the rest of my life to be said King of the time after his stroke. When there are moments of unhappiness in a marriage, you can overcome it at 40, but at my age, it became a lot. I wanted to be happy. Separating was, of course, difficult, but there's nothing worse than arguing. I thought about this. I thought, you know, as I was reading the news about Larry King, I wouldn't have read the article at all, but that I was preparing for this sermon this week, and, of, of course, marriage and divorce and things like that are my mind, so that, that title stuck out to me. It's almost comical, his understatements. You know, I mean, I think we kind of can snicker about some of the things he said. But let me say this before we continue on in God's Word this morning. There is nothing at all comical 
about marital struggle and divorce. There is nothing at all funny about marital problems and divorce. Marriage is, in my experience, and for those that I've done life with, is one of the most wonderful things in the world. In the last few years, um, I've realized, Christy and I are coming up on 25 this summer, and I've realized in the last few years that we've gotten to the point where when I'm looking at Christy, uh, oftentimes I feel like I'm looking at the rest of me. You know, when I was courting or when I was a young man, I would have heard that and thought, that sounds corny, and maybe I want to use that in the future someday, you know. But I really mean that. It's really a really wonderful thing when marriage moves into the place where you feel like that person is the rest of you. It is a wonderful, wonderful experience. And at the same time, it can be the most difficult, excruciating thing you have ever experienced. It can be the most wonderful and the most excruciating and difficult thing you've ever experienced all at the same time. And it's one of those things that unlike a job, which you leave and go home, Unlike a relationship that you can kind of, well, I'll see you next week, buddy, in this strained relationship. Unlike other things that we might have some respite from, you're never not married, at least if you're in the middle of a struggle. It's 24-7, and it can be excruciating. And it can be especially difficult if one or the other or both are persisting in sin or unbelief. It can truly get to the point where it is absolutely unbearable for a human being. Now, let's just, let's just shoot the elephant right off the bat this morning. There's an elephant in the room, and let's just identify him and shoot him. Let me say this before we continue in this message. We are not machines. Not a one of us. Not a one of us. We are not computers that we can put a, a program in, and bing, we're going to get this answer every single time. We are human beings, and we have all manner of experiences. We all have all manner of distempers personalities. We have all manner of things that contribute to an occasion and a circumstance that might look black and white, that may not be black and white. And we need to bring that compassion, that understanding, that margin, that love and mercy with one another and with ourselves into these next few minutes as we consider this thing called divorce. There are different tolerances. We're not machines. We're just people with hurts and pains and struggles. So my hope and prayer in this sermon is to be true and merciful. My hope and prayer in this sermon is for God's word to be front and center and to be absolutely true and to deliver it and consider it in a way together that is as tender as if our Lord were preaching it this morning. Y'all stand, if you would, for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Lord, speak to us this morning. Give us some medicine, some help. Give us some hope and some insight. Lord, more than anything this morning, put your son front and center. Show us how he fits into this question. We are entrusting this time to you. 
asking you to speak. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Y'all can be seated. These last few weeks we've been in the sermon, last few months actually, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. The last couple of weeks we've been in a section where uh, Jesus is speaking to six particular things that have to do with life. And really in some ways I think speaking to what life looks like with Christ in it and on it. Okay, the last couple of weeks we've dealt with uh, murder and anger. We've dealt with adultery and lust. And this morning we're dealing with divorce. Each of these six things sort of follow a shared pattern. This one is a little bit different, but typically the pattern involves three parts where he deals with Torah first. He shares a passage or some reference to some ancient Hebrew law teaching. Okay, the last couple of weeks we've been dealing directly, almost directly verbatim from the Ten Commandments. This week is going to be a little bit different where he's drawing from a sort of a legal, um, like a regulatory law. It's not a, of the top ten commandments, but it's a regulatory law. But the first part has to do with Torah. And you can see it, you can identify it, but where it says, you have heard it said, or something to that effect. That's how each of these little six sections start. Then right after that he says, but I say blank. And it's in that section there where he explains what was communicated actually in that ancient Hebrew law. And then he goes into some practical application. And this week is a little bit different in that he doesn't provide some practical application. We can glean it, though, from the context. So we will actually have, we're going to follow his guide this morning, consider the Torah, and in this case, the regulatory law, what he's referring to. And I'll just go ahead and give you a heads up. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So you can go ahead and turn there. I'd like for you to look at that. Deuteronomy 24. We'll look at that briefly. And we're going to try and make sense of what he's saying, why he's pointing us back there, or pointing them and then us through this message 2,000 years ago. And then we're going to figure out what he's explaining, and then we're going to have some application. Okay, we're going to follow his guide. Okay, his reference here is a loose reference to Deuteronomy chapter 24, really the first four verses. This is what a section that would be called regulatory law. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, in, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house... Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. I read one, uh, I have probably seven different commentaries that I'm working through just for the Sermon on the Mount right now. And one of the guys, I, I like this phrase because he said, this sounds like a torturous scenario. It's <laughs> just a great explanation of gracious sakes alive. It sounds like kind of a Jerry Springer episode. You know, who's, who's he married to now? Really a messy situation. And notice that Jesus does not quote the whole thing. In fact, he doesn't even quote verbatim the reference. Okay, we'll get at what I think he's getting at here in a moment. But let's deal first with this passage. This Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, it identifies some reason for issuing a certificate of divorce and it's described here as some sort of indecency, okay, some sort of uncleanness that he can actually dismiss her. Now, this word is used all over our Old Testament. It's used for nakedness. 
Okay, so we got to know right off the bat that we can't be speaking about some sort of nakedness where a man identifies a nakedness in his wife because we would hope that that would probably be part of the marital relationship in the first place. It's speaking of something else. Okay, and I think we have a clue because there's only one other place the phrase is used, and the phrase is used in the chapter right before. So we don't even have to turn a page. For the only other place in our Old Testament where this passage, or excuse me, this phrase is used of some indecency. Okay, so I'll just read our passage. It's in in chapter 23, beginning in verse 12. I've got to try and get my composure before I read this because it's a little bit funny, actually. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it. This is just talking about good camp rules. Whether you're going camping or whether you're bivouacking or whether with the troops or whether you're the nation of Israel, you've got to go outside the camp to take care of your business. Okay, that's where this is going. And you shall have a trowel with you, with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. All right, there it is. We're just reading God's word. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything, here it is, indecent among you and turn away from you. This is the only other place in our Old Testament where the phrase is used. And it's a strange reference. It's speaking of someone that has to go out outside of the camp to use the bathroom. It doesn't give us a whole lot of explanation here of what constitutes a certificate of divorce. It appears to be something more than adultery because adultery would mean the death penalty. So there's something else going on here, and we don't really have a clear picture of what's going on. Now, Jesus uses a loose reference to this passage. Okay, He just gives sort of a... Loose reference, but let me, let's, what we can gather up, I think, just from this one other phrase and the rarity of the phrase being used is this. Even though if we don't exactly know what it, what it is, we should know that it must be a rare occasion that constitutes divorce. The phrase is used only in one other place and is used in sort of a strange graphic sort of sense. So the rarity of its use and the content of how it's used ought to tell us that the grounds, at least in Deuteronomy chapter 24, for divorce should be rare. Okay, so take that thought into Jesus' reference back in Matthew chapter 5. And you can flip back to Matthew chapter 5. He's made sort of a, a loose reference to this passage. He's not addressing the torturous scenario at all. Notice that. He hadn't dealt with this weird you know, back and forth thing. Who's, who's he married to now? Who can't get married? Who can't get married? get married, in in terms of that Deuteronomy chapter 4 sequence. He seems more focused on the permitted reason for divorce. He seems more focused on the reason behind the certificate. Okay, He seems to be focused on and explaining the sum indecency. It seems like that's where he's going to focus here in these next few minutes in Matthew chapter 5. Now... We're going, to, uh, we're going to explore that here for a moment, but I want to share some context with you. The, the, in, in the time of Christ, um, it was mostly the male prerogative to divorce. Okay, there are some references really rare to a woman being able to divorce her husband. For the most part, it was a male prerogative. Okay, it was the guys that actually issued the divorce, uh, that wrote the certificate. The, it required no legal hearing. It required no proof. There's no due process at all. It was merely the husband's decision. 
And it sounds like just from that alone, like life for the wife in Jesus' time was pretty unpredictable. Okay, let me just tell you, you've heard nothing yet. I mean, yet, that, that's nothing compared to what you're about to hear. Uh, one of the commentaries that I have, actually, the guy did some pretty thorough research about what marriage was like and what would constitute issuing a certificate of divorce in the time of Christ. Okay, get ready. The Mishnah stated that a man could, this is an ancient Hebrew writing, probably around the first century, stated that a man could divorce his wife if she were barren, if she became a deaf mute, if she had epilepsy, tetanus, warts, or leprosy. Uh, it also insisted that a man could divorce his wife if she failed to perform certain services at home. Each day a wife was required to grind flour, bake bread, wash clothes, cook food, nurse children, make the beds, and weave the wool. Full day. If she brought one servant into the marriage, she did not have to grind, bake, or wash. If she brought a second servant into the marriage, she did not have to nurse the children or cook. If she brought a third servant into the home, she did not have to make up the bed or work in wool. If she brought a fourth servant into the home, she could sit in a chair all day long and not lift a finger. However, if her husband considered her lazy, he still had the prerogative to divorce her. Okay, it gets better. Rabbinic law also stated that the certain physical defects in the wife were so offensive that they were legitimate grounds for divorce. The general principle was that any physical defect or blemish that was serious enough to disqualify a man from the priesthood was sufficiently repulsive to serve as grounds for divorce. Consequently, a man could divorce his wife if she had a head that was shaped like a wedge. I'm looking around the room. We're going to need a wedge shape. No, I'm kidding. I don't know what that would mean, a wedge-shaped head like a... I don't know, like a triangle, a turnip-shaped head, a hammer-shaped head. I've never seen anybody with a hammer-shaped head, but that would be so weird. But what is so surprising is that you just realize it all of a sudden, like we've been married for five years, and all of a sudden I realize your head's shaped like a hammer. <laughs> I'm done with you. Or if her head was otherwise malformed, such as sunk in or flat at the back. Okay, so, I mean, lots of ways out. He could divorce his wife if she had poor posture or if she had thinning hair. He could divorce her if she had no eyebrows, only one eyebrow, <laughs> or bushy eyebrows. I mean, how would she know what to do? You know, do I pluck them? Do I let them grow? I mean, well, I don't know what I do today. He could divorce her if she had a pug nose. The condition of her eyes were particularly important. If she had eyes too high or too low, which... Again, wouldn't you notice that? I mean, I would think that before year five, you would notice if she had really high eyes. If she were cross-eyed, if she had no eyelashes, if she had eyes of two different colors, watery eyes or eyes that as big as a, eyes as big as a calf or as small as a goose. Look, and this, this is ancient writings about this is the context that Jesus is speaking into. Man, it's, it's really crazy. The man could divorce his wife if her nose was too big or too little, her ears too little or too floppy, if she had an overbite or an underbite, missing teeth or poor figure, a swollen belly, a protruding navel, a dark complexion, bony ankles or knees, swollen feet, if she were bow-legged, suffered from swelling of the big toe, if her heel had protrusions, if the sole of her foot was as wide as that of a goose, or if she were ambidextrous. You can use both hands, you're out. Isn't that crazy? I'm not even done. I mean, I'm close to done. In case you're like, all right, are you done? I'm close to done. But just let me, I think it's worth considering. A man could divorce his wife if she ate something that he had forbidden her to eat. If she visited the home of her parents. 
Hmm. Or if against her husband's wishes, the in-laws moved into the same city to be near their daughter. <laughs> that was you just got to laugh about. Oh, you did what? Okay. Here. The husband had the right to divorce his wife if she broke the laws of Moses or if she transgressed Jewish custom by going outdoors with her hair unbound, spun cloth in the street, or spoke to any man other than her husband. She could also be divorced if she cursed her husband's parents or yelled at her husband so loud that her voice could be heard outside the house. A man could divorce his wife if she had a bad reputation uh, and if she burned supper or if she, he simply found something in her that he thought or someone uh, other than her that he thought was prettier. Okay, this is the last little paragraph. It's just, just short. Uh, the husband could divorce, uh, divorce his wife uh, if she was not available intimately frequently enough um, that was grounds for divorce. The law specifically expressed appropriate expectations in this matter. It's crazy. The wife had to be available for her husband every day if he had the time, twice a week if he were a day laborer, every 30 days if he were a camel driver, and every six months if he were a sailor. All right, I just got a lot. It's just funny. I don't know why that's funny, but that's just really funny to me. But let me, let me tell you something. What what's really isn't funny is you can imagine what life would be like for a woman 2,000 years ago in ancient Israel. I don't know if anybody in the history of the world has done more for women's rights than Jesus Christ. Man, just think about that. All that the word speaks to about the rights of a woman. This is the context where she's just like property. Here, I'm done with you. Out, beat it. Scram. Man, that is the context that Jesus is speaking into and he's dealing with, I think, um, was not dealing with whether or not there were grounds for divorce. It seems where he's dealing with is whether or not, uh, or it seems like the question is not whether or not there are grounds. The question in Jesus' time that he's speaking into is whether or not you just simply issued her a certificate. Isn't that sad? He's addressing the problem that for them, it's just whether or not they issued a certificate. All right. So yet again, here in this case, in regards to marriage and divorce, Jesus is speaking past externals. He's done that these last two weeks in this uh, murder-anger section, in this adultery-lust section, and he's speaking past externals right now. The angry might say, oh, I haven't murdered anybody. He's speaking to the heart of that person, saying, yes, you have. Absolutely, you have. And the lusting might say, I haven't committed adultery. And he's speaking to the heart and said, yes, you have. And for one that's saying, I gave her a certificate of divorce. I'm good. doesn't matter why. He's speaking to the heart of the divorcer in that scenario. Man, he's speaking to the internals. He's speaking to the whole person. Remember, sort of the central key passage in Matthew chapter 5 is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word means whole. You must be righteous inside and out. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees because theirs is only external. Here's my certificate. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. And he's speaking to the internals. And saying, your righteousness must exceed theirs because theirs is only external. Yours must be whole, inside and out. Okay, so here's his explanation. Let's get into the, his explanation here in Matthew chapter 5. Just read the passage again because we want to have this right in front of us. Beginning in verse 32. 
I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay. Sort of, we're going to just sort of unpack this, really in two parts. First of all, everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. Okay, that's, that's, he's making two phrases or two statements there. And anyone who then marries the divorced woman also commits adultery. And then there's this exception clause in there. We're going to deal with the exception clause separate from these two statements. Okay, the adultery definition, we defined this last week, is having an intimate sexual encounter relationship event with another woman or man other than your spouse. Okay, remember we broadened that this last week, other than your spouse. So there's a how question here that if you're not asking it, you've got to be wondering, you got to, I want to let me help you ask this question. How in the world does a divorcer make his wife commit adultery? How does a man who's written a certificate of divorce for whatever reason, wedge-shaped head, whatever, make her commit adultery? There's something interesting about their context here 2,000 years ago that's also true, you know, as we're t- speaking of how common divorce was and how easily someone could be divorced. Also consider this. In their context, the person in the home that was the breadwinner was the man. So if a man dismissed his wife, that's what the word means, divorce, dismissed her and sent her away, what she had to do to survive, she either had to become a prostitute or she had to remarry. That's how he's made her an adulterer. Because by default, she will have to go resort to other means. The fallout of a divorce for a wife was terrible. Terrible. And just consider this. The sin of the divorcer perpetuated the sin of the divorcee. He made her uh, an adulterer. It was a given And then anyone who then marries a divorced woman commits adultery as well. You have to be wondering how in that case. Okay, the how, the first question we kind of spoke to. But how in this case are we making her an adulterer? Well, the clue to the how is in the exception clause. The clue to the how is in the exception clause. And that exception clause is except on the ground of sexual immorality. Okay, so I'm going to spend a moment just sort of explaining what that is. He's presented this exception clause for permissible, not commanded, divorce. Permissible, not commanded, divorce. The word that's used there in the original language is pornea. It means, what it says here is a nice translation, sexual immorality. Another, transla- another way to say it might be sexually, or sexual unfaithfulness. Okay? Except on grounds of sexual morality or sexual unfaithfulness. Okay. And first of all, I think it's worth identifying that this is a righteous permission, that a righteous person can take this out. In fact, Joseph potentially was going to do this. In chapter 1 of Matthew, it says, uh, when, um, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they, before they came together, they were together physically, before they consummated a marriage, she was found to be with child. Okay, there's no, the angel hadn't revealed to him the background for that yet. Uh, she's found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. He doesn't know that last part. All he knows is she's, got a, she's with child. And her husband Joseph, being a just and righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. We should establish right off the bat, this is a, a righteous uh, permission. 
to leave a marriage on these grounds, for a marriage to end on these grounds. It's not commanded. It is permitted. Okay, so we're going to gather up what we've just picked up so far, and then we're going to take it to Matthew chapter 19. So go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 is going to help us a little bit with this because we need some help. There's not enough material there in Matthew chapter 5 for us to really come to a consensus, but Matthew 19, he speaks further on the matter of marriage. And I'm going to gather up the, the bits here as you're turning. Here are the bits. The divorcer makes his wife an adulterer. Okay, that's part one. The divorcer makes his wife an adulterer. Part two, one who marries her commits adultery as well. And then part three, there's this exception clause. Except on the grounds of sexual unfaithfulness. Okay, so let's look at Matthew chapter 19 and see if we can get some additional insight. Beginning in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Apparently, habitually it is. Culturally it is. And they're going to quiz him on this. They're going to figure out what school he's part of. There were different schools of thought about what permitted marriage. There's the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. And the school of Shammai had a very strict um, standard. It was only on the case of sexual morality. The school of Hillel was the school that I read to you before, which was the norm. Everybody took all the outs possible and followed the school of Hillel. So in some ways they're asking, which school are you part of? He answered, have you not read? He didn't answer the question about which school he's part of either. He takes them to God's word in Genesis. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, that, if, if you have a, a parking place for a thought, one flesh is the key thought I want you to hold on to in these next few minutes. The two in marriage leave father and mother and hold fast to one another and become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. You hear it at every wedding, I hope. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? See, there you see their mindset. Commanding her, and look what he says. He says to them, because of your hardness of heart, the, the word there in Greek is interesting, it's sclerocardia. A sclerosis of the liver, you know, hardening of the liver, of cardia, sclerocardia, hardening of the heart. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you, allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. You weren't made for this. You're asking me what school of thought I'm in, and I'm going to take you back to God's design and God's principles for marriage. And we weren't made for this from the outset. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, here's the clause again, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, they respond incredulous. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. All right. Let's just see if we can just kind of glean a few things here. It, 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 at least initially in the design of marriage, there was no provision for divorce in the original design for marriage. Okay, let's start right there. When he's quizzed about where he stands on this matter, he takes him to the, to the beginnings and says there was no design for this in the very, very beginning at all. There was no provision for divorce in that design at all. And it was only because of sclerocardia, the hardness of heart, that divorce was even provided as an option. 
not a command. As an option, not a command. And now, okay, we're kind of gathering up these pieces, and then here's where it's going to come together. He's saying, it seems, that marriage is permanent, except in cases when someone has broken the one flesh union by uniting to another. Then it's permissible, not commanded, to divorce. I'm going to read that again because I want to make sure I'm clearly, that you're clearly getting that. Christ is saying from these things that we've gathered up, the divorcer makes his wife an adulterer. One who marries her commits adultery. There's this exception clause of sexual unfaithfulness. Jesus takes them to the very beginnings where cleaving to one another makes this one flesh union. He's saying that marriage is permanent except in cases when someone has broken that one flesh union somehow. And in this case, broken that one flesh union by uniting to another. Then divorce is permissible, not commanded. I'll show you one passage that gives you a window into this. If you're, if you're like me and you really got to see it, I want you to see it. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I only have one other passage for you to turn to after this. So just for your, your endurance sake, just go, if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians 6 and know that you'll have plenty of energy left for Ephesians chapter 5 where we land the plane in a moment. I want you to see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want our young people to see this. I want everybody in the room to see this, but I want our young people to see this. In a world, in a context, when everybody's saying, ah, everybody else is doing it. Why not? If we love each other, and really barely if we, even if we love each other, let's explore this thing called sex. Let's explore this thing called experiencing other sexually. I want you to consider this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in 15, verse 15, and on to verse 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, he's writing to the Corinthian church, which is a mess. I mean, the Corinthian church, if you've read 1 and 2 Corinthians, these guys are participating in all manner of craziness. And apparently, there's this practice of possibly visiting prostitutes, in some cases, maybe uh, cult prostitutes. A lot of the ancient Roman uh, cult traditions involved uh, prostitution. So maybe they're still participating in that, still dabbling in that while they're following Christ. So he seems to be speaking to some practice. He says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined... Now look at the, in my ESV, there's a little note at the bottom of the page. It says, he who holds fast. The same language of Genesis. The same language that Jesus used over there in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19, or chapter 19. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. He's speaking of the union that takes place when two people are together physically, sexually. There is a union, a one flesh union that takes place. And he's appealing to them, don't practice that. You're members of Christ now. Don't unite to a prostitute. So taking those thoughts and what it seems Christ is speaking to, just consider this. I said it before. I want to kind of, now that that you have that data point with you, it's permissible, not commanded, to divorce in the case of a flesh union with another because another union has taken place. The first union has been broken through union with another. And the certificate in that case is simply identifying what's already taken place, a broken covenant 
through the union with another, the flesh union with another. So someone who divorces on grounds other than sexual unfaithfulness, other than pornea, other than sexual immorality, is still married in God's eyes, according to Matthew. Is still married in God's eyes. And that's how that person can become an adulterer. If someone has been divorced frivolously, without a broken covenant, they're still in union in that first marriage. So then when they go unite to another, that's what he's saying. That's adulterous. So ultimately what he's saying here, he's saying that frivolous divorce is a sin. Let's just land and keep it simple. Land that plane and keep it simple. Frivolous divorce for the shape of her head, gracious sakes alive, for burning your dinner, for not doing things just the way you think they ought to be done, is sinful. No certificate can dissolve what God has joined together. Man, we ought to love that. No little written certificate can dissolve what God has joined together. Only sinful union with another could break that flesh union. You can write all the certificates you want. They could be in calligraphy. They could be on papyrus. They could have all the words spelt right. But they're meaningless if if they're frivolous. It is not a broken union. In God's eyes, they remained married until that spouse died or united to another in a sexual act, breaking the marital bond and thereby forming another. Okay. And the disciples' response is tragic. Did you note it? It's tragic. He's speaking into a context where people are divorcing for any and every reason. And he's saying there's very limited grounds for divorce. And their response is, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. This reflects a very, very, very low bar and low view of the permanence and efficacy of marriage in the time of Jesus. Like Larry King Low. Very low bar. Thank goodness he spoke into that context, right? I mean, just for the sake of women, is there anybody in the room who says, thank you, Jesus, for speaking in that context, for the sake of women who've been forced out of their home to resort to prostitution. If for that sake alone, thank you for speaking into it. Man, what a terrible, terrible circumstance. What a terrible time for women. And what a dark heart of man. These guys are just reflecting the dark heart of man. And there's nothing new under the sun, by the way. I think we have a higher view of marriage now than they did then, ironically. But there's still nothing new under the sun. For the heart of man is dark. And we need Jesus. <laughs> so there's an explanation, I think. Um, I think ultimately if we sort of, sort of boil this thing down, that his explanation is that frivolous divorce is sinful. And I've been trying to make sense of why in the world he has this placed here in the Sermon on the Mount. It seems oddly placed. I think we can all agree it needed to be said for the sake of women at least, the very least. The sake of families and children, we can all agree it needed to be said. But in the Sermon on the Mount? Is the Sermon on the Mount about marriage? Why would he be speaking to divorce in the Sermon on the Mount? He's addressing the grounds for divorce, yes, 
And there's a danger in that case of fixating on the rules and the stipulations and missing the forest for the tree. Man, we can't miss the tree. I mean, we can't miss the forest in the Sermon on the Mount. We can get stuck on the tree. But yet again, our Lord seems to be speaking to the heart as he has been so far at every point in the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to the heart and wholeness, in this case, of the married. Wholeness of the married. He's dealing with an issue that's acceptable on the outside. I haven't murdered anybody. Look at me. I haven't committed adultery. Look at me. Let's deal with your heart. I haven't, I, I've written her a certificate. Look at me. Let's deal with your heart as to why. Man, I think in this case so far, at least in this Sermon on the Mount, this section where he deals with these six things, when he's speaking to anger, he's dealing with the heart of murder. When he's speaking to lust, he's dealing with the heart of adultery. And when he's speaking of divorce, he's speaking of the heart behind the certificate. I think it's in considering that that we can figure out an application. Let me say this before I share just one application from Ephesians chapter 5. You can turn there. I have an application for men and an application for women. Ephesians chapter 5. Let me say this. The Sermon on the Mount is, the only, is not the only teaching on marriage. And Matthew chapter 19 is not the only teaching on marriage. While one verse is completely true, no one verse reveals the truth completely. I'm going to say that again. While one verse is completely true, no one verse or one passage reveals the truth completely. There are a number of different handlings of divorce in our Bible. Paul developed an, an exception clause that involved desertion. Okay, in Matthew, and I remember I distinguished in Matthew. In Matthew, it looks like the only exception clause, at least in Matthew, is on grounds of a broken sexual union by union sexually with another. Paul developed an exception clause on, based on the grounds of desertion. And if you're using, I think, your Bible wisely and handling that sword wisely and handling context wisely, you can also find grounds for a broken covenant in physical abuse, in verbal abuse, and emotional abuse. But the question is, are we making a beeline to how we can get out of this thing? Or are we really focusing on how we can stick this thing out, how we can go the distance in this thing. That seems to be the major point here, is to figure out how can we go the distance. We should take care in diagnosing every circumstance and condemning others, and hear this, everyone in the room, and even condemning ourselves. We should take great care in that. Remember, we're not machines. We said that at the very beginning. We're not machines. Let's take what he says and said and try and figure out why it's mixed in with the daily stuff of conflict, which remember there were not machines in that, in that context either. And the daily stuff of sexual attraction, also not machines, very much flesh. And after this, promises. And then dealing, getting, getting even and things like that. Why is he placing this in the middle of this? Why would it be in a section dealing with being whole and perfect as our Father is perfect? I think it's ultimately... Because Christ is supposed to be the center of this whole thing. He's supposed to be the center of this entire conversation. So let's deal with this in two parts. First of all, 
We need Christ in our marriages. We need Christ in our him in our conflicts. For every ounce of energy to go the distance with one another. We need him in our marriages. We need him in our sexual attractions. We need him in our imaginations. In that quiet place, we begin to entertain thoughts that we know we shouldn't. We need him in there too. And we need him embedded right in the middle of our marriages. Listen to this passage from Ephesians chapter 5. It should be familiar to you. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything, in everything, to their husbands. Wives, if you think you could possibly do that without Christ being all in your life, you have no hope whatsoever. Because I know your husbands. <laughs> Let's be really honest. I don't know them all in great detail, but I know them well enough to know that they're made of some, the same stuff that I am. And y'all have a terribly tough job. <laughs> Let's just be really honest. As a wife, don't you have an impossible task to follow and submit to that guy? This guy doesn't make all, always make the best decisions. He doesn't always have the best counsel. He's not always long-suffering and patient. He's not all the things that I always, always hoped that my perfect husband would always be, and yet I'm called to submit to him. You better bet you need Jesus in that equation. You have no hope of submitting to a human, frail human being without Christ's involvement. He's got to be right in the middle of that. I don't know how a woman could possibly do that without Christ being the center of that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Man, guys, do we think that we can actually live sacrificially with our wives as Christ lived sacrif died sacrificially for the church without his involvement? Do we think we can just kind of assume his presence and, oh, yeah, I love Jesus, and, oh, yeah, I'm going to be married, and I'm going to be a good husband and be a good father and be a good shepherd to my home? If you think you can possibly pull that off without Christ's involvement, then I've got news. It's an impossibility. Christ is pre preaching this message and giving some information and there's a potential to go, ah, I sure needed that sermon, with missing the point that you know you need the preacher. I'm not talking about me, I'm talking to him. The preacher of the Sermon on the Mount, where that mountainside should have been going, well, how could anybody be married then? And then looking at Christ, go, he's how. He's how I can submit to my husband as the church submits to Christ. He's how I can love my wife as Christ loved the church. And he's only how. He's the only way that I can die to myself. He's the only way that I can love my wife as I love my own body. That takes a supernatural work to love someone else the way you love yourself, right? He's the only way. You can love someone as you love yourself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This passage in Ephesians chapter 5 for the wife and for the husband is an impossibility apart from Christ. It seems like it's an obvious thing, but let's not let it be obvious. Let's not, let's not let it be assumed. Let's agree, everyone in this room who is either married or has been married or is going to be married or believes they want to be married to acknowledge right up, right up here, front and center, Christ has got to be in the middle of it. 
You need Jesus to do this. And you need Jesus to do this. You need Jesus to do this. And you need Jesus to do this. Marriage is a wonderful place to learn and apply what it means to draw on Christ daily. The last few weddings that I've preached at the very end or toward the end, we celebrate the thought that a ministry was born that day. A ministry was born that day. And it's a ministry that requires Christ to be right at the center of it. We need him in our marriages. And we need our marriages to ultimately be in and about him. That's the second thing. We need our marriages to ultimately be in and about him. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's preaching about marriage, but he's ultimately preaching about himself. You can't hope to be righteous inside and out apart from Christ. You can't. It's an impossibility. You can deal with the externals. Hadn't murdered anybody. Hadn't committed adultery. Here's your certificate. But the only way you can deal with the internals is with Christ being in the middle of it. It's ultimately about him. This passage in Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read the, the husband's portion of it because it begins to start speaking of Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself with splendor. Like, Paul, are you talking about husbands or are you talking about Jesus? Yes. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his, loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it, this thing that we've been talking about this morning, the whole morning, refers to Christ in the church. You want to know the number one reason that we should fight to hold on in the marriage that we're in? To love the one you're with? is because it portrays the journey of Christ and the church together. Man, that is, if you want a number one reason to do everything you can to go the distance in the marriage that you're in. Because it puts on display, albeit frailly, albeit feebly, the picture of Christ and the church. Marriage refers to, this mystery is about Christ and the church. He is both glue and goal in our marriage. He is both model and means. Ultimately, marriage is just a really, really graphic tutor. <laughs> it's just a really graphic and hard and awesome and difficult and great tutor of the relationship that we have with Christ and the church as part of his church. And you know what? Here's what's crazy. We won't even be married in eternity. We won't even be married in heaven. The thing that we came to enjoy and consider this morning, the thing that we came to hear about this morning, is ultimately about the marriage, the eternal, unbreakable, eternal long marriage between Christ and the church. This thing, this earthly thing that we experience called marriage and the struggles and the triumphs and everything in between is really a tutor that points us to all that we have in Christ.
we're going to have our supper and something I want you to consider before you, I don't want anybody to shuffle around, just kind of hang tight. I shouldn't have said, shouldn't have said supper because it's almost Pavlovian. We start to go, okay, I got to get my stuff ready. You don't have to get ready for anything. Just listen to this. Just consider this. I was thinking about this, what brides were subjected to in Christ's time. Wives, I should say. The unpredictability of it. I heard recently a counselor said that one of the most difficult things that you can experience in your life is unpredictability, not knowing what's going to happen from one minute to the next. And there are seasons that you'll go through where you experience things like that. Imagine your whole life, your whole existence as a wife in ancient Israel being unpredictable from one minute to the next. Is my eyebrow too bushy today? How's my head shaped? How's dinner? Is it just right, just so? Please don't dismiss me and send me out to the street. The unpredictability that they must have experienced, we don't experience as the bride of Christ. Amen? Don't you love that? In Christ, we are absolutely and completely secure. He's the perfect husband. He preached that message as the model. He preached it as means as well, but also the model. I'm the perfect husband. He's basically communicated. He will never fail his bride. He has made us his own. He will never leave us or forsake us. He'll never issue us a certificate. No dismissals. Just a relentless, sacrificial, and faithful love for his bride. Man, we've got to enjoy that together as God's people. We're going to distribute the elements here in a moment. And when we distribute these elements, let me encourage you with this thought. If you're, if you, if you're not part of this bride that we've talked about, if you're not trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, then please forego this meal. This meal is for the bride. If you are trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, and He's your groom, and you are stirred just even at that thought, that ah, He will never leave us or forsake us. He's a faithful groom. And we are part of his bride. Then I want you to take these elements and we'll take them and eat them here in just a moment. Let's go ahead and distribute the elements.